Welcome to Founder Chats, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. This week, I talked with Yaron Korthout, co-founder of Salesflare. In this episode, we talk about your own story, customer development, and a whole lot more. Enjoy. Hey, Jerome, welcome to Founders Chats. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Brian? Doing well. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. So usually how we like to get started is to take it all the way back <laughs> as far as it, as it makes sense for your story. Like, Where did you get started on your entrepreneurial journey? I guess I always liked building stuff when I was a kid. But building means creating. I mean, like, I like to draw and drawing classes. I like to, I don't, I don't know how to say in, in English, but like, create stuff with whatever like at some point i remember i was on vacation in italy with my parents i was dreaming about this catapult i was going to make uh, <laughs> nice i don't know why i it's so, somehow like my, my brain was not occupied and i was like i'm going to build this thing i would also make this kind of blowing pipes i once hurt my finger real bad while making one completely cut it yeah Huge cut, lots of blood, fainted because I was I was using I think scissors to take the sides the branches off, and then I was going to hollow hollow out the branch. It was from I don't remember what, and then uh, it would meet this blowing pipe. It, it didn't make a much lot of sense, but but I think where all this building and creating and started becoming a little bit entrepreneurial was when I was we got internet when I was twelve thirteen I think. And when I was 15, 16, I discovered the joy of building websites. Like I discovered all the cool stuff you could do with Flash back in the day. You could build this kind of really animated, beautiful things. And it wasn't really hard. I mean, I could do it. And I didn't have programming experience or so. I learned a little bit of HTML and CSS just off the internet. I learned Flash and Flash Action Code, I think it was called, also off the internet. And I built a site for myself. And then I think I built one for my mom. She's an architect. And then I started building for other people. I don't remember exactly what I did. But that was that was really fun. It was my first time that I actually started designing also in a, in a certain sense. And, and coding. I mean, I, I, I did a little bit of coding if you want, like, like hacking the games or so. To, for instance, I remember I found out how you had to, how you could change the properties of, of cars in GTA. GTA. Or I'm talking about Grand Theft Auto 1, the, the one that was still fully 2D. I think it was 2D until 2. And you could, you could actually change the properties of a car so that it, a normal looking car would be really, really strong or fast or whatever. If you would just go in the config and uh, change some stuff, but really coding that was that was the first time. And I saw myself starting a, a web design agency at some point. I actually even considered because I, I studied engineering. I went to the open day and I thought I was going to go for computer software engineering because I thought that's that's where my future is. But then I came there and I saw the they were exhibiting stuff, right? So to to make you interested in in, in different uh, engineering disciplines. And I, I just really didn't like what they were exhibiting. And also the people exhibiting didn't really have a great connection with them. They seemed really, really nerdy. And I ended up doing something else. I actually ended up doing electrical engineering together with business management in my bachelor because I, I like doing stuff with people. And I just figured that sort of there, that was where my future was. Not just purely doing the engineering, but also the business side of it. And then in my master's, I could choose between different electrical engineering disciplines. And I chose biomedical engineering because I felt like I could make the most impact with it more than with, I mean, it's, it's all subjective, right? But it felt best to me, like versus energy where you work in power plants or microcircuits when you're like with chips and stuff or telecom, you know, like mobile phones and telecom operators and all that and it was also really interesting to also have medical courses it made it all the more all the broader expenditures and stuff and that's why actually i started my career not in real engineering i started off in pharmaceuticals but that actually happened because i i went to interviews and i figured i want to do something with people so i i I looked for application engineer and then it it still seemed quite engineering i wouldn't really talk with the customers that much and i asked them like could i do something else more with customers and they're like oh project manager perhaps and then they made me do a test for that 
And they figured I was not a good project manager based on their test. So I, I didn't want to hire me for that. And I was, I was so frustrated that evening. I was like, okay, the hell with all this. I'm going to do, going to do business school. And um, a friend of mine was coming over and I was going to go out with him. And I used his credit card to pay the, the fee to, for the application. And then I actually ended up uh, entering business school. I did that for a year. And from there, that actually allowed me to go straight from studying engineering, well, with, with the year of business school in between, but I went to do a marketing job in, the, in a pharma company. And that was actually because I thought if I want to start a company, the best way to get experience is to put a product in the market, uh, to be responsible for a product. So I'm going to be a product manager. And I figured that's sort of like having your own company. Except I discovered really, really quickly that it wasn't. <laughs> I, I had nothing to say. It wasn't at all me who would put the product in the market. Somebody else way higher up would make all the decisions and I could do some really basic execution. Well paid, but uh, still a very basic job, if you ask me. So I, I was immediately fed up with the job. At some point, I figured that nobody else in the pharma company knew anything about websites. And I did. So I thought, why don't I start a, a web agency for pharma companies? Because I understand the pharma marketing thing now. I've done it for a few months. And I understand websites. So I could do that. And then I had dinner with a guy who actually, I knew did something like that. And he said, you have no experience. Nobody's going to believe you. Join us. We're going to teach you everything. And then you can see in, in six months if you want to do something else or he supported me a lot in the company. I became the... At first, I, I was on all the cool strategic projects together with him. And then afterwards, I became account manager. And I was the youngest account manager in the company, which was really, really nice because that was way more like having my own company. I was responsible for clients. I would basically find clients. I would find what, what needs they had. I would make a proposal, I would make a budget, outline the whole project, then make sure it, it got, I would do the high level project management or sometimes the whole project management, make sure people did stuff and then uh, report back and, until really the, when, the, when the invoice was paid. So it was, it was very sort of independent job where I was doing a lot of stuff that prepared me for having my, my own company after that. And then actually during that job, I was still... I still wanted to start my own company. I went part-time, which was great. So part-time, I was still doing the consulting. And part-time, I was starting some projects. I had a bunch of projects, most of which failed. I started uh, a company making uh, a sort of way for doctors to stay on top of the latest research. It's a huge group of people that follows research but are not researchers. And it's really hard to, for them to follow things that they're interested in and find the relevant articles for them. That failed because I, I didn't really find a, a viable business model. I thought ads would be the business model, but it just it's not, a, it's not a great business model if you don't have a huge audience. Of course, I sort of knew people in pharma marketing and I knew how to sell it, but it's still very hard. And you, you can't sell ads before you have the audience. So it's a sort of catch-22 when I was getting sort of at a, at a dead end with that, I, I started a website for people who went to the World Cup in Brazil to organize their trip around it. My wife helped me. She's Brazilian. So I figured out, like, if you go to this and this game, then you can do that. You can, you can use these companies to fly. You can stay there. You can visit these things. It was nice for a bit. I learned a lot about SEO while doing it. I got a good amount of traffic. And it actually made some money because the, the main thing that people uh, were clicking on that I got referral fees for were flights. And I think I got 8% of the flights or something at that point, which was, oh, was wow. good money. That's great. But then, of course, the World Cup happened. And yeah, you know, <laughs> not exactly evergreen. No. Yeah, that's when the site died. At the same time, I went to a health startup weekend. We won the Health Startup Weekend with a, a software company that was going to make it easier for nurses to follow up on pacemakers. Like every manufacturer makes their own portal and sends out emails and stuff, but it's very hard for nurses because different patients have different brands of pacemakers and they, they need to go through all these portals to follow up. So we made this one dashboard thing. We won that Health Startup Weekend. We then also 
right after that, I raised some funding from an accelerator. It was 50K or something, but it's good to get started. But then we, we were like a bunch of guys and met each other at a weekend. Didn't know each other beforehand. Uh, all had jobs. And I didn't feel like I was going anywhere. So a bit after we got started, I actually decided to, to drop the project because I, I didn't see it going anywhere. That was a bit of a mistake. By now, they've raised uh, many millions. I stopped keeping track, but I think last time I checked, it was at least six million or so. And I am not in the company anymore. But also most of the guys that, that started it with me are not in there anymore. I think it's just still the CEO and then the, a whole new team that is actually consciously hired. At the same time, also my current co-founder, one day, I, I actually met him when starting that first company. I was in an accelerator con- called the Founder Institute. And he was uh, in there as well with his company, which was an easy way for developers basically to set up a database and have an API on the data. And he didn't end up starting that, or I don't know exactly where that stopped. But one day he calls me because he had another software company that was was building business intelligence software. And he was going to go to a big conference in Vegas. It was a big IBM conference, the yearly one. They were selling BI software that was compatible to to IBMs and they still needed a salesperson. So he thought about me and he calls and he's like, do you want to go to Vegas for a week? I'm like, oh, sure, why not? So I, I took some days off at work and we went to Vegas. And because that was such a big success, like we had a lot of leads at that conference, lots of people interested in buying the software. I started collaborating with them. And it's actually while doing that, that we got the idea of Salesflare and started working on it because because we had so many leads and we need a lot of follow-up. There were uh, people in business intelligence and they have this, this they're, they're very slow. Like you, you email them and they say like, yeah, that's, that's really great. We're really interested. But now we're doing something else. So why don't you contact us again in, in seven months or something? <laughs> so we needed something to, to track very well, like we contacted this person about that, what they said, the latest contact was them, we need to follow up then again. And we thought that CRMs should solve it. So we tried a bunch. I, I, I personally had experience with Salesforce and I knew that Salesforce wasn't really built for that. It was more built for, let's say, for management reporting rather than for end user. That's, they, they focus on enterprises, right? So what's, what's most important is that, that the enterprise can do everything they have on their list, that it, it's perfect for the way the organization works, but not necessarily how the end user would like to have an interface. And then we tried a lot of other stuff. And I think the guys at Soho at the time, which was basically a cheap Salesforce, we tried. I don't remember all the, the different software we tried, but any every every different system that we used Basically, we ran into the same issue, and that was us, basically. We didn't manage to keep the system up to date the way the system expected to be kept up to date, because every single system came with the expectation that we would be this supernatural data input robots or something who would keep track of every single thing we did like very diligently, consistently. We would email or call or meet with someone and always end up in the system. Somebody else would be involved from the company that would be in the system. They would share their phone number with us that would be in the system. And well, it wouldn't be in the system. And that was the big issue, which made that our our sales follow-up process was sort of falling apart. And we were like, how come this is so bad? Why do we need to do all this? And I mean, we started thinking, why are we actually, why do we have to do this? Because the the data that we're putting into these systems is already somewhere. Like we we have our emails in our email inbox. There's information about the the person there in their email signature. There's the email, obviously, the name, the email address. We were using email tracking. We could integrate the email tracking. There's meetings in the phone with who is involved and what it's about and all this kind of stuff when it happens, obviously. There's things on your phone like calls. There's things on social media. That there's things in company databases. There's web tracking. What if all of these things could be pulled in, integrated, and then the system 
keeps track of it for you. And all you need to do is curate it basically. And it helps you to do the follow-up instead of you having to work to keep the system up to date. And if you don't do it, then it falls apart, right? This does it for you. And it's a robot, so it, it doesn't it doesn't need discipline. It just does it. And that's that's when we got the idea for Salesware. That's now like seven and seven years and five months ago or so. We immediately obviously saw that it was a bigger issue. It's not just our issue. Most salespeople hate CRMs because they don't just don't help and started working on it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what a what a journey. That's really cool. And I'm sort of struck by it's interesting you said like when you were young as you can remember you sort of had this instinct around like i don't know actually i don't even know how to phrase it. it's almost like a, a sense of like visualization or maybe it's just like a, a classical sense of design where you like you look at a branch and you see like you know a flute or <laughs> you you just uh, you know just daydream like you know what the optimal catapult design would look like it's really interesting how that sort of carried through of like even you know even just to the next step of like okay well you know we have the internet and people need websites so i'll just like it's almost like the the work of like okay well it's very clear to me that this is a direction i should go in and you just kind of do it and you just kind of figure it out yeah i i don't think the 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 blowing pipe there that was just because my grandfather always thought about told me about how he how he did these things and my mom told me about it but then the rest yeah i think partly i was i was raised in a let's say my dad would always enjoy very technical stuff and explain them to me and show them to me and all these kind of things so i got a bit of uh, a technical sense and interest there i always got all these books with how do things work etc when i was a kid and i had a bunch of history books that i read and Actually, when I was a kid, I would read a lot of books. I, I recently started reading a lot again, but not uh, at the volumes that I would read back then. Back then, I was we went to the library every three weeks, and I would take away five books. And four of these books would be actual books, and one of them a comic book. That was a limit that my mom set. One comic book, man. And actually, I would usually finish uh, these five books before the three weeks ended. So that was was a lot of books and then my mom is a is an architect she often showed designs and she'd get very excited about changing this in the house or that and it's a it's sort of you could say my, my mom's interest and my dad's interest sort of fused into sort of very technical side and a design side but at the same time also what always slightly annoyed me I still my dad is still still a geek is he's he's technical for the sake of it and he enjoys that but but I don't somehow I just I just can't be interested in in technical stuff for the sake of it for me the technical things do need a purpose for people it needs to be useful you know <laughs> it's it needs to do something. And, and I think that's partly also why I didn't want to do a pure engineering job. I wanted to do something that would involve people because not seeing the effect, not working with people to make something useful, I just can't. It's, I don't know. That's interesting. So you said that you, you were into websites for a while and you made a website for yourself and a, and a website for your mom. Did you, did you wind up were there any other people that you created websites for, or was it mostly just sort of for yourself or for you know kind of immediate family? I created one or two more, but I really don't remember. It was also it was a, a short period, and I was very excited. But it was basically, I think, mostly summer vacation, and then I had to go back to school, and it's and it, and, and it became very quiet again uh, right, in terms yeah. of website building. Yeah, no websites at school. I still, I still did some. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> we didn't even have computer class. I think that was not a thing. I think when I was seventeen, eighteen or so, that's when one teacher started involving computers at school. He would he would make graphs. It was in math class. I did eight, eight hours of math, so we had a lot of time to learn math. Like eight hours means we we have like. I think two hours or something of school hours in the week or something. And eight of those were math. 
that was a big chunk of, uh, of my last two years. But that teacher, he, he, he would enjoy making graphs on the computer, but he was a bit older and he wasn't really good with software. So if he started like uh, creating graphs, we knew we could sit back and the rest of the of the, the lesson would be uh, chill because he would be struggling with the computer while we were. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, a, it's like a, a live stream tech support, <laughs> tech yeah. support in action. You just kind of like sit there and watch it, watch it yeah. unfold. We were like, try that, try that. And then and just uh, sit back. Cool. And so you, you went through that. That totally makes sense. Like you, you had this sort of, you know, it was kind of like the excitement of that summer of building websites and learning about that. But yeah, as you get back into school, you kind of get back into the, the normal swing of things. I actually really wish that uh, during that time and even during my, my time at university, I would, I would have done more things like that. But somehow when school or university or so started, I would, I would re- get really consumed by that. Next to that, I would, I would maybe read some stuff and I would maybe go out or... But I wouldn't get really entrepreneurial. Somehow I'm happy about it. But on the other hand, I, I also slightly regret it. I also don't think that as a kid, you need to be an entrepreneur from as early as you can. And I think you need some sort of exploration as well. But I feel that a lot of time was also just wasted. I know, watching TV or so. Sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think we all can think back, especially in the day of like... Um, the like video games and things like that being modernized and they can kind of report back to you on the number of hours that you've invested <laughs> in video. It's kind of like, oh, I didn't need to. So many hours. Yeah, yeah I didn't. I, I, could, I could be speaking a foreign language or I could have some advanced math skill or be more physically fit with the, you know, hundreds of hours that I've spent across all these different games. Oh, definitely. Oh, I enjoyed so many. Actually, like... Even schoolwork would, would often have to move for, for gaming. At some point when, when we had exams and I was in secondary school, so that's in, in, in Belgium, that's like when you're 12 to 18. I think we were also like 15, 16 or so. When we had exams, we would only start studying when, when my mom came home because before that we were at the computer right? and we were <laughs> yeah. playing these games, my brother and I. And then when she would arrive, we would hear the car coming and we would like press the button of the of the PC, turn it off very quickly. Our our books would already be spread out on the table. We would sit behind them and pretend we were we were studying all afternoon. Ah, uh, nice. So it was it was premeditated. You already you you didn't have to pull the books out of your bag. You like you set the scene. <laughs> so you know, yeah, yeah. Of as course. soon as mom gets it, you just like jump right into the right into books. Uh, yeah. Then you know, you're like whew, we've been we've been <laughs> really studying. Uh, Good thing you, you just came home, mom. We're we're ready to take a break. We've been studying so yeah. Hard oof, when is the food ready? Yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah nice. exactly. Well, so so you sort of you know you sort of went. Did you say that like moving you know kind of beyond the summer of 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 websites and you kind of went into university? Did you go directly into biomedical engineering from there, or was there did, did I miss a step? So biomedical engineering was university. So yeah, I mean, it's like I, I went to secondary school. I studied Greek math. That was like the sub direction, whatever. And then I went into electrical. And en- well, at first it's just general engineering. Then it specializes in the bachelor in electrical with business. And then in the master, I did biomedical engineering. And then I added a year of uh, business school. I think it makes sense. But how did you make the decision going down the engineering path because it does seem like there's a lot of there were a lot of other things you could have chosen to move t- towards even just with the experience that you you had already i think that was largely influenced by my dad i always knew i was going to study engineering my dad wanted us all to study engineering i think i knew it when i was still even at primary school when i was 10 or so i knew i was going to become an engineer i'm actually happy i did it it's a very useful thing to study even though I don't really use most of what I studied today, I was lucky to, to take some, some courses I could choose like in, the, in databases. And we had a little bit of programming and all that. That was good because that's the things I use most today. But it's just in general, you learn how things work technically, which is something I like to wonder about. And it's generally useful, I think, when you start working. 
Were there any other principles that even just like the engineering mentality that you that you took with you that you find are useful in what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's partly shape, shaping your brain to uh, look at things, understand them, think about how can we solve this. Do it from an applied sort of perspective versus when you're like doing pure uh, science, then you don't you, you just analyze. You don't necessarily apply and get a solution. But in engineering, that's very much the purpose. So yeah, I think that's that's maybe even the most important thing is just the way of thinking that you acquire when when studying uh, and studying it. Interesting. Yeah, and then you said so you, you completed that. You completed that degree, and then you you went to work at the company for a little bit, and you wanted to to have the a more you human a more human facing role. And was that the time in which they were like, "Yeah, we don't think you're you're cut out for this," and and that's what made you decide to go the the business degree route? I was just applying there. I didn't I didn't actually work uh, there. Right. I was at a company called uh, Materialize, one of the very early three D printing companies, and they were having medical applications that what was when I was applying there and they indeed didn't really want to give me a very human facing role which was there it was project manager and that's when I said well okay good but I, I I really want to go that direction so then then I decided to go for business school cool and did that did that seem like a pretty like and to me listening in it kind of sounds like a little bit of a leap but I, I think it makes perfect sense so that just seemed like the logical the logical next step for you? Yeah, it's something I would, I would really recommend. At least a, a good business school, of course. It get, they 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 don't teach you super deep things. It's not like studying engineering, but it's very broad. You touch all aspects of business. You also learn how to work on things because you get a lot of uh, group tasks that you have to do together. It's sort of like simulating working in a company before working in one well at least it, this is this was a, a master in general management which is sort of like an mba but you, you don't have experience you get all the same courses but the students you work with also don't have working experience plus you you maybe get the cheaper professors or something because uh, it's 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 a uh, much cheaper than the than the mba itself i think it was four times cheaper or so still expensive so I wouldn't necessarily recommend it just for the sake of it. But if you want to do something in business more general management-wise, it's definitely good, especially if you want to go into a corporate job because then you could use it to get a better job. Interesting. And aside from sort of the, you know, kind of the structure of the program of like learning how to work with other people and getting projects accomplished, were there any like kind of like specifics, other skills that you learned or any specific knowledge that you found was like really useful to deploy on a, on a regular basis? I think what I use most today is the, the financial knowledge. We had some financial management courses and I had to build balance sheets and all those kind of things. That's probably the most useful technical skill I got from there. The, the marketing courses, I, I wouldn't say were particularly useful. I think Marketing at school is is not really well thought. And some of the cases in the entrepreneurship courses were interesting, but still very distant from my current reality, let's say. They were kind of this kind of perfect Harvard cases, you know, of these these big companies that made it and with a specific sort of tactic, which isn't really applicable on the on the really more like the smaller entrepreneurship level, it usually is already entrepreneurship that reaches a certain scale, which then if when you start a company doesn't make it entirely useful. Yeah, it seems like you you don't really study businesses which have failed, which is you know maybe more instructive for the early stage companies. And if you do study a company that's failed, it's like Enron or there's, you know, some sort of major, you know, it's like, it's not like, hey, they had this idea and they couldn't figure it out quickly enough. It's more like, oh, well, there's this major ethical issue or. We definitely, definitely saw Enron. We watched the movie on the TV in the classroom, even. That was, that was one of our most uh, interesting classes, I thought. I watched the movie afterwards, even again. It's the documentary about Enron is really good. But I, I wasn't necessarily talking about 
not studying about companies that fail. It's more so when they discuss business strategy, even in entrepreneurship, it's about companies that they're not in their starting phase. They're somewhere way beyond and they're discussing how the strategy played out perfectly or something, but they don't tell you this is how you start a company. Actually, the way they taught us to start a company was was horrible. They taught us to write and that we actually had to do that. We had to write a a 40-page business plan for this company we were supposedly starting. And then they would grade us on the business plan. And it it wouldn't be like, okay, do customer interviews, build an MVP, create a small deck or something. No, it would be the, the total opposite of that. Actually, all of the things they taught me then, I didn't do for Salesforce. At some point, I did have a pretty detailed Excel with, with like forecasts of the amount of sales we were going to make and the amount of costs we were going to have, depending on how we were going to scale and all. None of that actually played out the way I uh, simulated it there, I think. It was pure Excel magic. And when we talked to business angels at some point, there were some business angels that wanted to see that, and I would send it through. And I remember one that was even commenting on details of the model as if it really mattered. I'm happy that the business angels we got on board in the end were the ones that didn't want to see the Excel model because it just, it's not reality. You start something, you think it's going to work a certain way, but it doesn't. And all of the models you made in the past are just obsolete. It's somehow good as a mental exercise for yourself to figure out what is needed uh, and all that, but it should stay very basic sort of back of the envelope because the any of the detailed things you're going to simulate it doesn't happen anyway yeah totally yeah we we work with people with their financial models too and yeah i see the same thing especially if you're just getting started to your point like you don't even know what assumptions to make or like or you don't know if what you're writing down is an assumption and then you're so far away from the, you know, the actual mechanism of your business where it's like, you know, if you're actually running a company, then tightening, tightening up your, your forecasting and your, your operating model is much easier because you can like troubleshoot it. You can say like, Hey, well, you have your revenue is, you know, tripling, you know, in the next five years, but you haven't forecasted additional salespeople or, you know, commission, you, you pay your sales team commission and, you know, you, you have your commissions flat, but your revenue is tripling, you know, what's going on there? You know, th- those are the, that's the type of troubleshooting you can do. And you can, you know, through that process, you can get to something that actually turns out to be pretty accurate. But when you're first starting to your point, it's like, well, you know, this is who we think we're going to sell to. And we think we're going to sell it for this amount. And, you know, it's just like, it's everything is, is, you know, I think you're right that writing it down is useful, but, you know, because it, it can get all the thoughts out of your head, but, you know, building a five-year projection off of that and then hoping to stick to that is what I have. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's op- optimistic. I would say, <laughs> let's use that phrase. For instance, most of our costs were going to come from having salespeople because initially we saw Salesflare as a sales platform that we would sell to medium-sized and larger companies. That would basically, versus you already had Salesforce and you're obviously not going to throw out Salesforce as a huge company, but your salespeople didn't really have something they could work with. They wouldn't really use Salesforce. And then we would come in and say, ta-da, we have Salesflare. This is uh, uh, actually built for salespeople. It tracks stuff for them automatically. They'll use it. It's a sales platform just like MailChimp is for marketing and Zendesk is for support or whatever. This is for sales. And that's the way we're going to sell it. And I had booked in all these salespeople and I, they were scaling up and we would sell these, these amount of licenses per customer and all that. But that all didn't happen because at some point we decided to switch to small companies and actually sell a CRM and other sales platform. And everything, the whole, the whole model fell apart. I think it's, it's really hard before you have your business running and sort of, I don't know whether it's until product market fit or so, to really forecast correctly. Right, I mean, today I have a cash forecast that go into, I think, 2023 or something. It's not too hard in SaaS. You know what your costs are. You know how they scale. 
you know how your revenue goes up you know you know a lot of things but in the very beginning it's just again i'm i'm for doing something basic and thinking through some things quickly but the whole excel modeling at some point just it doesn't make sense anyway yeah it's like there's like a very <laughs> narrow window like in the middle of like if you're too early then the I, I, I'm with you. I think we're on the same page here of like, you know, writing down what you think your assumptions are and like where you think you're going to get to even just to sort of say like, well, hey, like, what is my expectation? Do I expect that I'm going to make a million dollars a month off of this? Or, you know, like, where do we think this is going like directionally? And how do we think we're going to get there? And, you know, how can I even pretend to do the math that I can start to work backwards from this very large goal? But yeah, like, like doing a big Excel model doesn't make sense at that point. But once you start running the business, like we see this all the time where we have companies that are are doing like pretty well. You know, if you're if you're running a business and you always have, you know, enough cash or your break even by the end of the month, then it's like, yeah, you can have a an Excel spreadsheet and you kind of do the math. And like you said, usually within SaaS is predictable enough that it's like, yeah, you can like run your run your company off of that. And then at some point things get more complicated where you need to be more thoughtful with all the different, you know, all the all the different gotchas and all the different components and the interconnectedness. And maybe I'm just more sensitive to that because it's like the line of business that we're in. But then all of a sudden, like, okay, well, now Excel is a is a mess. So there is that time, there is that phase where you know the Excel model has its like, uh, you know, has its day in the sun. <laughs> then, but too too early and too late, you you might wind up running into to more issues, especially too early. I, I agree with you on that. I, I kind of want to also talk to you because I, I had a maybe not a similar startup weekend experience, but I'm just sort of curious, like how how did you decide to attend a, a startup weekend? And, and maybe you can speak a little bit more to like what that experience was like. Well, actually, it was the the first health startup weekend, which is exactly what I was. I was like in healthcare and I wanted to start some something in healthcare. So I was super excited. I skipped a lot of startup weekends before that, but this one I was like, I, I really need to go to. Experience was actually great, apart from the fact that I was sick during the weekend and I was like having a, a cold. And I remember that the showers were cold and all that. That uh, was, was the least pleasant part of it. The work together with all these other guys was really, was really cool. It's basically a bunch of, I, I think only guys that came together to solve something and we did it really efficiently like uh, a few were working on the solution i was actually thinking about the marketing model i did a few forecasts as well but relatively basic ones and then turned it into a presentation partly then our our ceo also the the rest of the work there we did a lot of work during that weekend really quickly which was which was quite exciting I think the issue with such a startup weekend is is like continuing it afterwards. I think because everyone comes in with the expectation that sort of it's a weekend that we're gonna supposedly gonna start something. Most people don't don't get it get into it with a serious intention of starting something together with a bunch of people. You just and that's where it where it went wrong for us as well. Actually, I, I saw quite some themes from Startup Weekends coming into the incubator where we used to be in. And I think today there's only one company that I can imagine that still exists from such a Startup Weekend, apart from the one that, that I was in that also still exists. Actually, both, both the one I was in and the one I'm thinking about, it's just the CEO, the guy who started the whole project. We're still continuing it without all the other ones. That person brought the project to the weekend, was very excited about it, and is still in there. And all the other people that sort of helped in its initial phase, a very short phase, but they just drop off. So maybe it's a it's a it's a good place to experiment with your idea, get some other people to collaborate. I would never expect it to really get you a team or whatever. Interesting. So your advice might be maybe look at the startup weekend more as a place to meet people and gain skills. And it also sounds like it's just like, it's just fun to do. It's exciting to do, but maybe don't count quite so much on like, Hey, I'm going to go here and I'm either going to like, this is going to start my business or that I'm going to like walk away with like a hot 
startup that I'm that I'm I'm involved with. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you have an idea, you want to test it, you want some people to sort of give it some shape together, that might be a good thing, but then don't expect these people to to collaborate with you after the weekends. That's where the expectations are mostly wrong. But it's a good way to get started, especially if you win it. You also get a bit of publicity and all. You have a feeling that your idea is worth something. Although a lot of startups that get press or awards don't really make it in the real world. I think that's good advice. If you're if you're going to do a startup weekend, you might as well win it. You know, <laughs> you might as well just might as well go for it. What made you decide to go in the first place? Was it just because it was like a something that was brand new and it, it had like a a sense of novelty to it, or or did you walk in with like some sort of expectation yourself? Oh, I just uh, I just thought it would be exciting. I was like I said, held startup weekends. There wasn't anything like it. I wanted to do something in it. I thought I'm gonna meet a lot of people. I'm gonna do something cool. I don't think I really had a super clear expectation. Awesome. Okay, cool. So after after the startup weekend, is that when I, I'm trying to keep track of the story? Is that when you were you went to to work for another company at that point, right? Before you started your business, because that's when you realized that there was this need for these longer sales cycle. So that's that's when my, my co-founder called. Well, not my co-founder back then, but he called and he said, we need a, a salesperson for his software company going to Vegas. You could say that's, that's sort of where Salesforce started because we started collaborating there. We started selling. We needed the system and Cool. That's great. And, and how long were you were you in that role before you? And actually, you mentioned that you you sort of you sort of were given some some space to go part time to to get your get your business spun up. Like how how long were you were you there before that? You, before you like really realized that like hey, there's this other idea that's worth pursuing. I think I was part time for a year by the time we got the idea for Salesforce. And then I stayed part-time for another half year until the accelerator. We, we were like admitted to a local accelerator, which was like supported by one of the big telcos. And it was super exciting. We were one of the, the 10 winning companies. But one of the conditions they had was that we would go full-time on, on our startup. And that's when I made the leap. Afterwards, I found out that, that a lot of startups in there had negotiated not to go full-time. Uh, that's funny but i made the leap and it thankfully all turned out well because basically we had uh, 25k i think uh, in the beginning and it it didn't didn't last for long sure yeah and what were the early days like going into the accelerator and kind of getting just started from scratch what was what was that like yeah so initially we we had the idea we thought we need money for it I'm rewinding. So we thought we, we need money for this. So we're going to get it somewhere. We, we, we know about this thing called Kima 15. It was by Kima Ventures. I think Kima Ventures still exists, but Kima 15 doesn't. But the offering was for 15% of the, their, your company, they would give you 150K within 15 days. It would all be arranged. That was interesting to us. So I built a deck with our, you know, the, the usual investment deck. And my co-founder built a prototype of what we're going to build. And we sent that to them. I think in a matter of a week or two, we had it all together and we sent it to them. And they came back with the the feedback that we were a bit too early stage, which was (laughs) just true. We were a bit disappointed, but we, we had the deck, which we then used to go out and show it to some people with the prototype. We also applied to that accelerator at that point. We said, oh, there's an accelerator, we can apply. We had our stuff together, so we had the materials, we sent it. An incubator as well, where we did the same presentation and got allowed. And then, and then actually, when we, when we got into accelerator, that was about four months into our journey. We had done a lot of sort of sales talks already, always trying to trying to get people interested in, in what we were going to build. but. We mostly got a lot of questions. Like people said, will it do this? Will it do that? You know, and, and we, we usually got stuck there. And it was when we entered the accelerator that we got some workshops on different aspects. And one of them was on customer development. And they said, go do, uh, I don't know, X. I think they said 40, 50 or something. Customer interviews. 
really understand the issue that you're solving, the context for people, explore it from different positions and all those kind of things. And that was probably the most important thing we did because of joining that accelerator is really taking that step back. And if, instead of taking these early steps as sales conversations, take them as research conversations, which is way easier. Second, probably what a, what a good sales conversation is like, especially if you don't have anything yet. And in the end, these people that you interview are, are really good leads for afterwards. It doesn't really make a lot of sense yet to sell if you don't have anything yet except of course if your product is is relatively simple to build and is a super high need then you could you could you could get clients already before you have it but in SaaS in general i think that's it's relatively hard i think in SaaS it, it mostly makes sense to do good customer research build an mvp try to get people to use it when they use it try to get people to pay for it and then go from there yeah that's awesome could you could you give an example of like the type of way that you would conduct a customer development call? Yeah, I, I, I changed that quite a bit since since back then. But I think in the early ones, the most important thing is to explore the issue and explore the context of it and explore any ways in which they already potentially solve the issue. And what I do is I would have this is I think a Word document or something with a lot of possible questions to guide that, but it's much more free form, I think, than any later customer interviews that you do. When we do customer interviews nowadays, they're relatively well scripted. You're also much more specific on what people had before they had your system, why they didn't switch until then, and lots of other questions like that, more like following more like the jobs to be done kind of stuff. But in the very early days, what's mostly important is how does the issue look like and why didn't they solve it yet? And in what context would they be solving it and all that? Because then you really know how to shape your your solution. If you don't know all this context, you, you might be building something that in the end doesn't for I mean it it solves the problem, but it doesn't solve it within the right context and in the right way. Interesting. How how broad would you go in your questioning? Like, for example, would you say something like, you know, tell me like what your standard workday looks like? Or would you try to focus a little bit more into like the specific area where you think the problem occurs? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I would focus on sales. I'd be like, so how do you guys manage your customers? How do you uh, organize a follow-up? How do you track your salespeople? How do you make sure you uh, increase your revenue? Things like that. I mean, I, I wouldn't ask them questions about uh, whatever, uh, where do you track your cash flows or so. I mean, not really the context for what we were trying to build. Got it. And, and in that call, you're, you're trying to understand like the pain point and, and sort of how they, how they interact with sales. It maybe sounds like an opportunity for them to say like, yeah, we, we manage our, our follow-ups this way, but you know, it's actually a really big pain because it's it's a lot of manual work. And obviously, if somebody said that, you would you'd love that and <laughs> you'd be you'd be all over that. Uh, actually, what what people said uh, back then was not really that, which was funny because we were like, okay, the issue is is that you have too much manual data input. People need to put in too much work. It doesn't work, they don't want to do it. We think the software can be better. And when we would reach that point in the conversation, people would generally say like, no, no, I don't think the issue is the software. I think the issue is the salespeople. They're just lazy. And, you know, we have all kinds of solutions for that. One solution is we train them well with the CRM. A second one is we make their bonus dependent on whether they fill it out. A third solution is we fire them if they don't fill it out. Things like that. And then I would be like, no, I'm pretty sure the software can be better. And they're like, no, I don't think so. It's the salespeople. So we would somehow agree that there was a problem, but we wouldn't agree on where the problem would be and and why. And which was funny. Things have shifted a lot since then because you've you've seen many CRMs also becoming wildly different. I think we're still the the only one built 
actually from the ground up to really do that automated data. All the flows in our software are, are really take automated data input as the as the, the basic thing. And then the manual data input is somehow a secondary. But most software has has embraced the idea that people inputting data manually that just doesn't make sense. Data input is something for, for computers. That's what computers are built for to manage data and to automate things around that. It's not really people work. But back then people wouldn't wouldn't agree with that. They would be like, no, this is people work. We need to do it. And that was weird in a way. Because then you start wondering like, are we on the right track? Because people disagree that this is a solution. They agree that there is a problem, but they say it's in another place. And well that somehow Sometimes you need to ignore what what people think, I I suppose. Look through that a little, keep your different viewpoints. But all the rest of the information was definitely helpful. All the things we gathered, uh, all the context in which they were doing things, all the different ways they used sales data and the way they managed their people. It all informed the the way we built the product. Interesting. So it seems like you got positive feedback that companies recognized that there was a problem. They didn't agree what the solution was or where the problem was coming from, but you you felt okay proceeding because like, well, our solution isn't out there yet. So it's not really something they can even... Con- Did you also ask questions to try to like quantify the problem in terms of like revenue or, or time or something like that to try to help get an idea of like how big of an issue this was for the customers? Yeah, I mean... There's different aspects to it, but none of them are well measured, partly because the whole, if a CRM doesn't get filled out, you don't know much about all the sales processes and all that. You don't know what's what's lost because of lack of CRM usage. It's just impossible to have great estimates there. Nowadays, we have customers reporting to us that they save or, or make a certain amount of revenue extra. But back then, that was really hard. Yeah, you almost need to especially in the super early days, you sort of need to make some sort of assumption of like, well, if doing this is going to improve your sales process or is going to save time from your salespeople, you know, if you had an additional 20%, if every one of your, your person, every, every person on the sales team could spend an additional 20% of their time selling instead of entering data, like what would that do for you? You could probably hire fewer people and they could, everybody could, you know, handle more leads and it sounds like at this point, you're sort of needing to walk the customer down the process of thinking through the monetary effect of, of solving this problem versus them coming to you and saying like, you know, we really want to save XYZ dollars in moving to a system like this. And actually, the, the big value is not really in the saving the data inputs. It's not really in saving these hours. It's in having a, a sales system that actually gets used. And the main effect is on follow-up. It's basically why we started building it as well. We wanted to organize our sales in a better way. They don't want to keep track our, ourselves because we, we just didn't manage to. We wanted a system to keep track and then use that to do better follow-up because so much revenue is lost just by forgetting the follow-up, not following up at the right time, like letting, letting the momentum go away completely, not remembering uh, the things you discussed in the last time, not knowing what the the next blocking point is for the customer or where they are in the sales process or whatever. It's really, for, for many of our customers, it's a, it's a place where they were losing a huge amount of money. One customer reported to me that they, it's just three users or so three, three people working on sales that they earn a million more now per year just because they do better follow-up. So imagine it's what goes lost because because systems don't work. It's, it's really not so much about the, the data input. I mean, the data input is nice, but it's it's the the promise of CRMs not coming true. That is the bigger problem, right? Yeah, that totally makes sense, and it's it's an interesting and maybe a, a more challenging sales process for you. But it's sort of like you have to invoke the imagination of your customer and be like, well, imagine what it would be like if you you know knew the state of every customer and you knew when to follow up and. What would your business look like if you just never dropped the ball on a lead ever again? <laughs> it's like, it's kind of hard to imagine, but it's just like, you know, that's like, 
a huge, well, hopefully for them, it feels huge. If they don't understand that, then maybe they're not that good of a customer for you. But anybody who can invoke that level of imagination, they can start to go like, oh, wow, well, yeah, like our our PQL to close rate is probably going to get a lot better. And that's a goal that we have, or, you know, whatever, like however it is that they they go about reasoning about that improvement. Exactly. Now, it's a bit like you guys, you don't necessarily sell, I mean, the value is not necessarily in how easy it is to build a dashboard with, with bare metrics on top of your sales data. It's more in what effect that has. Than, I mean, you, you might get certain insight that then bring you extra revenue. I don't think the, the win is in how easy it is to build whatever, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's like the just looking at the, the data is not the benefit. And I think certainly it also depends on the stage of the business. Certainly as we, we have larger customers that are, you know, willing to are updating things through spreadsheets right now. And, and, you know, they're like the prospect of a product that updates every 30 minutes. Like basically if they, if they could pay for a product that would update a spreadsheet every 30 minutes for them, they would pay thousands of dollars for them. But that that's kind of something that is only that's like economics of scale. Most companies come to us and the reason why they they find it to be valuable is that they're able to test their ideas and to find insight and to make changes within their businesses and and monitor those changes so that they can they can make more. So yeah, you're certainly right. It's just like you look at the product and you see a bunch of charts and so you might make the assumption that like oh, this product is about charts. And it's like, well, no, it's actually a product about actions and making more money. But I understand why you don't think that because that's not what it that's not what it looks like when you look at it. Cool. Well, I, I, this has been awesome. I, I really appreciate you you sharing the story, and it's just been such a cool such a cool path to hear. I think a lot of people will will sort of I don't think sympathize is the right word, but you know, sort of like like uh, see themselves in, in kind of similar spots along the way. Just to kind of bring us in for a closer, I'd love to hear like you know what's bring us all the way up to today. Like what's going on with the company day? Like, what are you working on? You know, any kind of interesting things that, you know, if people, it sounds like I think a lot of people might already be listening and saying like, Hey, that's not like they could solve our problems. So hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have all the the links to, to get people to reach out, but yeah, just curious, like what, what's going on with the business today and like, what's kind of the current day state? Current day state is we have a bit over 2000 companies using our software. We keep improving the software. There's a lot of cool stuff we're adding. Like we just made an upgrade to our, our email workflows, which is basically a sort of email outreach automation system within the CRM. And the next thing we're going to release is a, a LinkedIn sidebar, which makes it really easy to update the CRM from within LinkedIn. And also actually when you are on someone in LinkedIn to say, I want to I wanna add this person, what's his email address? And then the whole process just very quickly goes from there. So we're working on all these kind of things. At the same time, we're working on uh, getting more people on Salesflare and yeah, improving the system and getting it to more people. Apart from that, you can actually try the software if you go to salesflare.com. We work very actively on, on always improving the onboarding. So one of the things we tried is if you now go to the website and click try it for free, you get into you get into the system without actually try, uh, needing to create an account, so you can you can go through a whole walk- walkthrough. And if you like it at the end, you can connect your emails, and it seamlessly goes into your own account with your own data. And if you want to get in touch with me, LinkedIn is the best place. You can just find me on LinkedIn. I'm sure there will be a, a link in the in the show notes. Yeah, and then uh, don't forget to uh, add a personal note when you send a, a connection request, because otherwise I will have to assume it's spam. Uh, because usually in that case it is. If you add a personal note, then I'll certainly get in touch with you and we can have a chat. Awesome. Well, yeah, and that's really cool how you have your your sort of onboarding process set up. And yeah, I guess I'd invite all of our all of our listeners to go in and try it out, maybe become a customer. This is a great place to end. Again, I really, really appreciate your time. Such a cool story to hear. And yeah, I think we'll be hearing uh, a lot more from you over the next couple of, of months and years here. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. That was our conversation with Jeroen Korthau, co-founder of Salesflare. If you want a sales platform that works, you know where to go, salesflare.com. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at barometrics.com. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. If you're able to share with a friend or leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.